Welcome to Storytelling Breakdown. I'm Ben Clemmer. And I'm Caleb Meyer. The word real is in the title of this episode, and that might be a fair starting point given we intend to hit on some heavier subject matter this episode than we have in the past. Recording this in Fort Wayne, Indiana, March marks a year for many of us in our community since the COVID-19 pandemic became real for us all. And we hope wherever you are listening, you are safe, well, and keeping your head above water. Now I have a story for you, and I'll tell it in second person so you can visualize yourself in our protagonist's shoes. Imagine you are a struggling actor, and your life is at what you'd admit, though not at the time, is a low point. You talk with your agent, who brings up an opportunity to be involved in a movie called Sweet Liberty, being put together by a well-known and well-regarded figure in the industry. This well-regarded figure? Alan Alda. Oh, wow. You meet Alan Alda, and it sounds very much like he's offering you the part. Then he says, great, we're going up to West Point tomorrow to look at a cannon. You read the script, the sides, there's a partner where you pole vault over it. Do you want to come up with us and take a look at it? As one does. And you realize, is he offering me the movie? You ask, and he is. He offers to come pick you up, but now you have to tell him about your living situation. You're living in a small apartment that shares a building with a funeral parlor. The business occupied the first two floors. The proprietor lived on the third and fourth, and then you and your roommate are up on the fifth. The next morning comes, and you hear Alan Alda's voice down in the street calling your name. <laughs> that sounds absurd. And it really happened. You ask your roommate to check out the window just to confirm that it's really him. Also, now would be a good time to ask, who am I? Well, you're John C. McGinley, of course. Ha! Huh. Okay, th so hold on a minute. You have the Scrubs connection there. He's also uh, plays the Adam in Justice League Unlimited. I enjoy John C. McGinley immensely. I think he played Metallo, too, for one of the DC animated features. But audiences would also know him for Office Space, Seven, Point Break, and Platoon. And this is before all of that. Yes, it was. And there's one more complication. John C. McGinley didn't know how to pole vault. Thanks to an interview that he's done in, on sports shows, I, I think I can't remember if it was uh, Dan Patrick or Rich Eisen or maybe both. Uh, I know that McGinley went to school for sports journalism. Which explains the part that he played in 42. It does. But you're not just going to pick up pole vaulting while studying sports journalism. How did this pan out? So McGinley spent seven weeks learning how to do it, getting help from a friend and just jumping over trash cans and stuff like that. On the day of filming, McGinley did the take. They got the shot from seven different cameras and he cleared the cannon. <laughs> That's impressive. But McGinley wanted another take. Instead, with the sun setting, they were done for the day. And Alan Alda came up to him afterwards and said, You didn't know how to pole vault, did you? Well, McGinley couldn't lie anymore, and he said, Yeah, I didn't know. Alda pointed to one of the stunt doubles and said, That's not why I cast you. We could have had him jump over the cannon. I cast you because I wanted you in the movie. <laughs> That's just really cool. It worked out in the end. That connective tissue between those two actors connects our two subjects for today the 4077th Mobile Army Surgical Hospital, or MASH, and the denizens of Sacred Heart Hospital from Scrubs. Zach Braff and Donald Faison actually have their own podcast called Fake Doctors, Real Friends. And today we're discussing Fake Doctors, Real Dramedies.
This is probably a given, but spoiler alert for MASH and Scrubs. Caleb and I will be talking about both shows extensively. Now would probably be a good point to mention that I grew up watching MASH. I've seen probably every episode. There's a lot of episodes, but I've probably seen every episode. And you, Ben, have seen all of Scrubs. I've seen all of Scrubs, and I have watched five MASH episodes thanks to the episodes that you recommended, and I had a list for you uh, yeah. to watch for Scrubs. I think I saw about 12. So we are coming in from the positions of a veteran in one show and a newbie in the position of the other show. You have been watching Scrubs. I already know I want to go back and watch all of MASH. My dad just retired. We're probably going to wind up uh, watching it together uh, over the course of these next uh, couple of months, given there's 11 seasons of content there. It's weird that I missed it because I've grown up on so much of the television of kind of the, the 60s and the 70s and things that uh, my parents uh, grew up watching and enjoying. Though, obviously, MASH is a little heavier on the content side, so I'm, I'm not surprised I missed it in my childhood. It's a little heavier, and the similarities keep piling up between our experiences with both of these shows because I totally missed out on Scrubs as well. I always knew people who were big fans of it, and like I had friends who watched it, but... like. I was always more into Psych, which was kind of a contemporary at the time, and like I never made the jump over to Scrubs. And Psych's a little bit cleaner. That's fair. Whether it was, again, I'm thinking about some of the contemporaries here, or, or things that came before, because my dad and I watched Get Smart, although now if we want to look more on the military side, we watched F Troop or Hogan's Heroes. And Hogan's Heroes, I believe, stops in 71 or 72, right when MASH starts. So it kind of comes in, fills that void, though... Very different scenario in terms of rather than, oh, our main characters are behind enemy lines in a POW camp and there's a lot of kind of farce and just the, the Germans are portrayed as buffoons brilliantly by Werner Klemper and John Banner. Uh, instead, we get a very real experience of what the Korean War is like, although it's kind of about all wars, the experience of MASH. And, and again, even after five episodes, like it, it's just... It pulls you in, and I very much look forward to seeing more. Yeah, the creators specifically wanted to make MASH all-encompassing for any experience of war so that they can sort of tell that story to the masses of people back here at home. And part of the way they made MASH feel so real is, now it's in California, not the Korean Peninsula, but they went out into the wilderness and just built an army medical camp that was the set that they filmed on for the whole time. And then you have... Uh... Again, taking our comparison to Scrubs here, uh, they had an old hospital that they used for their setting. Everything was in it. Like even the scenes where you're seeing, oh, it's uh, JD and Turk and their apartment. That was still within the same building with you only had to build out to the hallway and build bedrooms and a bathroom and, the, and their main room with kitchen and living where you're going to see most of what's going on in that space. But all still within the same old hospital uh, that served as a sacred heart. Uh, where the show was filmed. And both locations almost become a character unto themselves for each show, respectively. You get so used to the swamp where Hawkeye and his tentmates live or, you know, Colonel Potter's office, and you get so used to seeing that same... It's like an L-shaped hallway in Scrubs where they've got patients here, and then there's, like, a closed-off little room with windows on it. Even in the 12 episodes I saw, I saw that, like, I was like, I've seen that room. And I see it again. And I see it again. When you have conversations about, granted, this is more specific to fight scenes, but just the importance of geography uh, to good writing. And that definitely played in with uh, one of the episodes that you had me watch. Uh, we'll, we'll, I think it's a lifetime. We'll talk about that in a little bit. 
uh, just having a sense of where everyone is plays so well into the structure of the show. But before we go any further, though, let's talk a little bit about each of the showrunners. Because, and again, going through and I'm just pulling up videos and just documentaries or, or reunions shows about MASH after uh, watching uh, what you recommended to me. The show was created by Larry Gelbart, and he talked about how they had just pages and pages and piles of research and accounts from people who did live through the Korean War. And that almost seems like, oh, 20 years pass, you can go through and then do a show about the experience. We get Hogan's Heroes roughly 20 years after the end of World War II. We get MASH 20 years after Korea. I'd say that's a trend that continues, and it's like not to get too political, but this was also a time when the wars actually ended. You have a scenario where they can take these real accounts, and I think they said they had people who lived through the Korean War who came to the set and said, yeah, this is what it looked like. This is what it felt like. This was the experience of living in a mobile army surgical hospital. It's also worth noting that you can't have MASH without Alan Alda's footprint on it. His fingerprints are all over it. He directed a ton of episodes. He wrote a ton of episodes. And... You really get a feel for his, like, style of storytelling. And he embodies the character of Hawkeye so well. To the point where I'll see him in other shows and, like, can't shake my feeling of, oh, yeah, that's Hawkeye. The parallel to the writing and, and that aspect of it and kind of the, the personal spin of so many of the characters. You, and you run into that, and, and we see it, unfortunately, in so many cases where actors who get so well known for playing a part in a series for a very long period of time eventually kind of become typecast and can't escape the image of that character. When it came to Scrubs, the show creator was Bill Lawrence and Robert uh, Maschio, if I'm saying his last name right, who plays the Todd, (laughs) one of the many, you don't want to call them side characters because as Scrubs went, it almost felt like they had like a tier B of characters that were in so many episodes, had been on for the whole ride appeared in so many places and a lot of times were there for one or two moments or one or two jokes maybe but then also started to get a little bit more development and have more attachment to the plot and the moments in the shows that you're going to be emotionally invested in those characters started to matter more and Mascio credited Lawrence because he kind of contrasted the two of them because the Todd is an absurd character who, yes. who spends half the show either in his green scrubs or in a speedo usually and I never saw him in the Speedo. I'll thank you for not making me watch that. <laughs> that was Russian roulette at that point. I gave you, what, 12 episodes? There would have been plenty of opportunities with a different list. Oh, my word. And we'll get to that, how we selected those episodes in a little bit. He's just the Todd. He is the Todd. And the connection there just between his style, he described it. Well, he was good friends with the showrunner, Bill Lawrence, which is probably how he winds up on the program in the first place. And he said, Bill would write great material. His content was amazing. But when it came to stand-up and comedy, he's kind of shy he's not going to have the best delivery in the world and then in contrast (laughs) Mascio had as as he put it terrible material but he was shameless on stage so together they would have made one great comedian and you have that experience of okay well they're both where they're supposed to be you have a great bit character like the Todd who stands out in so many ways and you have a showrunner who is providing all of the actors just amazing scripts throughout a multi-season run and Scrubs did that very well for the better part of eight seasons. But MASH, it felt like it had it going the whole way. You had me watch an episode in season one. You had me watch the, the finale. And from start to finish, granted, again, small sample size, just the fact that 
it feels like in so many ways those characters stuck with you as well as they did because they were just getting so much great material. Like the, the amount of jokes and just quips that Hawkeye is able to deliver in just one single episode, one after the other. Man, it's well written. It's worth noting, though, that the magic, again, a parallel between both shows, the magic contained in it really is only contained in it because MASH had two spinoffs, one starring Radar and then one with Cleaner and Colonel Potter called After MASH. And both... I've never seen episodes of them, but they both didn't do very well critically and were canceled shortly thereafter. And Scrubs just isn't the same without the character of JD. It's his point of view with the exception of the his story, her story, and their story episode. You're inside his head. You're seeing the world through his eyes. You are experiencing the fantasies and all the, the cutaways that are just such an amazing part of that show and just the different gags that they're able to do. And that lens, kind of going back to the idea of, again actors after the show for so long you cannot separate zach braff from the character of jd mm-hmm. it's like we have john c mcginley has popped up in all sorts of different places for those who don't know sarah chalk as elliot reed and scrubs you've heard her voice if you're a fan of the show rick and morty because <laughs> she plays the mom she also shows up in an arc of how i met your mother which was my first exposure to her she is one of ted's love interests for like four or five episodes And she's part of this amazing ensemble cast and just the way that the relationship dynamics change over time. You could say it was unsustainable because I think they only did it for like the first three seasons, but like she and JD would hook up like once a season and then the relationship wouldn't work out. And then like by an episode later, they were broken up and you're back to roughly the status quo. And then with a little bit of extra baggage. And then as time goes on, they have more love interests and characters. Uh, Elizabeth Banks comes in as one of JD's primary love interests later on. And just so many amazing characters and moments. It was a funny experience for me watching it in like bursts. So like the first episode I watched was in season one and then I skipped to like season three and then it was five and six or whatever. I think Jordan was in the first episode that I saw, but then she showed up later and they mentioned that she and JD had hooked up and I was like, what? How did that happen? I think that episode was just called My Bad. Uh, uh, well, basically, she seduces him. And then afterwards, as they're coming out of one of the hospital rooms, he's even like tying his scrubs up a little bit. And is like, oh, Dr. Cox, have you met? You don't have to introduce me to my ex-wife, newbie. And then it just zooms in on JD. And he's just like, oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Oh, gosh. Well, there's... A lot of parallels between the episodes that we watched, so we want to start diving into them. Uh, You started me in the perfect place, which, again, it would have taken me a while to get there, given it was an episode that got highlighted when I went back and watched some of, like, the documentaries and reunion stuff. And then, of course, the first one on your list that you recommended, sometimes you hear the bullet. Yes, which is, like, known as the first episode that really got real on MASH, because the basic premise is... Hawkeye, the main character, one of his childhood friends, comes through and dies on the surgical table. Context. This is my first time watching a MASH episode. This is the first thing I'm coming into. And Hawkeye has a nurse in his tent, and she says, I shouldn't be here or we shouldn't be here. And he's like, none of us should be here. War is dirty business. And she says, I I mean, I shouldn't be in your tent. He's like, my tent is dirty business, but it's more fun than the war. It's like (laughs) that almost like... Groucho Marx level of wit that's mm-hmm. just rapid fire. I'm I'm in. Let's do this. That first experience of death on the show. And and again, just uh, some of the very real emotions and experiences that both of these shows capture. The parallel 
to sometimes you hear the bullet for Scrubs is I had you watch My Old Lady, which is season one, episode four. But let's stay on MASH for a moment here just because there were so many aspects of that episode that stuck out. And just you get some different gags and some different ways to introduce the characters because, like, I meet Frank Burns <laughs> in Margaret's tent and he throws out his back as, as they're embracing and she manages to get him out and go get help and I, I think she's, like, panicking or says something like, he's in shock. And Hawkeye says, he's going to be in divorce court tomorrow if you don't clear the tracks coming from your tent. <laughs> and just these great moments that tell you everything that you need to know about these people. And we go forward a little bit and eventually meet Tommy Gillis, his old friend, and just getting that wonderful uh, establishment as he's talking about the experience of being a soldier and how it's even more real than the experience of being a correspondent because his intention is to write about it. And uh, writing a book, what was it? Uh, you, you don't hear the bullet or you never hear the bullet and saying it's not like the movies and <laughs> saying I'm keeping my country safe from the communist menace and Hawkeye's response. You used to be a communist. <laughs> and then the, the B plot of the episode, as soon as I saw young kid, red hair and I saw the face, I was like, hold on. You gotta be kidding me. IMDb. And it's a young Ron Howard oh, playing really? the part of, I actually never knew that Wendell actually Walter uh, who is a 16-year-old who has taken his brother's identity so he could go out and fight in the war. And you get Hawkeye's interaction with him, and Hawkeye initially, he's there for appendicitis, perform the operation, and then we'll get him back out there. But Hawkeye is is hesitant and, and doesn't, and just tells him, wait a few days, recover. And he also keeps the secret. He's not going to say, hey, this kid's underage. He shouldn't be here. And then eventually, yeah, a whole regiment has, as they put it, taken it in the teeth. Gillis comes back in. He's severely injured. Says, want to hear the funny one? I heard the bullet coming, just like in the movies. And Hawkeye says, well, sometimes you hear the bullet. It's a better title anyway. And of course, it's the, the title of the episode. And Gillis passes away. Father, okay, he gets called over, which is the moment where it's like, okay, yeah, this isn't, uh, isn't going to go Hawkeye's way. You also get a moment after that which was my first experience with Henry Blake, where he tells him, rule number one, young men die in war. And rule number two, doctors can't change rule number one. And that tells you so much about how the experience of death is going to be handled on the show going forward. And then at the end of it, he does wind up outing Walter and tells Margaret to put a guard on him and they're going to send him home. And he is so angry at Hawkeye. I hate you. I'm never going to forgive you this for the rest of my life. And Hawkeye's response is, let's hope it's a long and healthy hate. He'll go back home and he'll survive this. And then they even get, they even give him the purple heart that was going to go to Frank Burns for throwing out his back in the line of duty. I think Hawkeye's response to that was, it, or it's at this rate, they'll be giving out purple hearts for social diseases. What I love about that episode is it perfectly sets up Hawkeye's character for the rest of the series. You watch that and you know exactly who he is. You see... The womanizing, snarky aspect in the beginning with the comedy, but you get to see how much he hates death and fights against it, and his moral compass of doing the right thing, even if people are going to get mad at him for it. It's funny because my old lady kind of does the same thing with its three main doctors. So JD, Turk, and Elliot, that episode sets up what their characters are going to be like for the rest of the show, and... It was cool. I got to see the influences from that episode in all the wrestling that I watched. So 
the basic premise is three patients come in and JD tells you at the beginning, one in three patients die in this hospital. That's just what happens. So right away you're drawn in with, okay, who's it going to be? And JD has this old lady. Turk has this young guy who's in a sports, who needs surgery. And then Elliot has a Spanish woman that she can't communicate with because she doesn't speak Spanish. And they all learn a lesson from it. JD learns, you know, sometimes you got to take your time, just enjoy the little things in life. Live a little and take the time to smell the roses, absolutely. Turk learns that he has to actually connect to his patients and he can't just be an impersonal surgical doctor. And Elliot learns that she has to trust herself because at the beginning she's super flustered and doesn't know if she's making the right decisions and constantly is asking Cox for advice. And he's like, look, just you're a doctor. You have to make the call. And then you see that later on. I mean, there were episodes where I was watching where I saw Turk, you know, dabbing up his patients and stuff like that. And Elliot is very decisive from then on. And JD takes those little moments. JD's patient, she decides not to go on dialysis. So she's like, I've lived a full life. I'm ready to die. And JD doesn't understand it. He like can't fathom why. And there's a moment where he's talking to Dr. Cox and Dr. Cox is like, that's her decision. Like, you know, you've done your job. That's all you can do. And it's similar to the moment that Henry has with Hawkeye, you know, rule number one, young men die. Rule number two, doctors can't change rule number one. We're definitely going to go through and compare some of the character archetypes uh, as we keep moving here. And, and maybe this actually is a good time to talk about it uh, because before we jumped on the mics, we discussed one parallel that I hadn't made. And then as soon as you brought it up, it works so well because it's easy to see, oh, main characters, connections between JD and Hawkeye. But in terms of personalities, Hawkeye is more of an equivalent to Cox, mm-hmm. which then makes that personal connection between McGinley and Alda even more amazing. So then at that point, you kind of have to wonder who's JD. And <laughs> there's even a title connection if you want to take this one to start us out, given we have the the MASH origin story that you laid out for me, and then we have a connection to a couple of the Scrubs episodes that I asked you to watch. Yeah, so two of the Scrubs episodes that Ben had me watch is a two-parter where these patients come in and they need organ transplants, and then this other patient dies, and so Cox orders the transplants to be done, but then they find out later the patient they got the organs from had rabies so all the people they put the organs in then die because they infected them with rabies and so in the following episode cox has a breakdown and comes into work drunk he can't handle it he blames himself for their deaths and it's called my fallen idol and jd is all upset because he let him down and he held him up in such high esteem and there's a mash episode by the exact same name fallen idol where pretty much the same thing happens. Radar gets injured, Hawkeye blames himself, gets drunk, and comes into work as a doctor drunk, and Radar is all mad at him and can't forgive him because how could you do something like that? And that's an amazing parallel just because of the coming-of-age story that we see over time when we have Radar as a young kid coming into his own, and we have JD, again, starting out as an intern, becoming a resident, uh, almost kind of like a power crawl through the show. We see the characters build up their confidence, become more decisive, become better at their profession, even as their profession carries with it immense amounts of trauma. <laughs> Going back and watching these shows as we've been dealing with the pandemic has been 
interesting because this closeness to death and this experience of trauma is something that we're experiencing for those of us who aren't in the medical field right now. So you can only imagine, again, just speaking as two guys on a podcast, what people are going through and what this experience is like as you're losing patience when there's nothing you can do, that feeling of powerlessness. And the pandemic gives it whole new context. But whether we're talking about scrubs in the 2000 aughts or whether we're talking about MASH from the 70s into the 80s, something about great art is it doesn't change, but the experience of it changes depending on what the audience is going through. One thing I think I can actually connect it to is a question that I know I've watched a lot of interviews with Lin-Manuel Miranda that he would get questions about Hamilton. It's like, I wrote it from 2009 up through to the mid 2010s when they find when it finally uh, is performed and debuts and everyone's asking it's like oh this line relates to current politics it's like well politics changed to match the musical it wasn't the other way around the world changed to make the experience of scrubs and mash that much more relevant the shows didn't change the other way around but there's so many experiences that are universal and just it, it's one of those moments where again I think anytime we now I'm even kind of thinking back to our first episode where we talked about Heath Ledger, those performances, those episodes, those movies, those TV shows that really stick with you are when you clearly someone tapped into something and tapped into something that is deeply human, deeply personal, and something that someone's going to be going through at some point. It's going to keep resonating through time. Well, and Scrubs and MASH feel so universal, and I feel like any human can relate to both of them because at their core, they're both shows about grief and loss. I think we can delve into that idea a little bit more. And actually, I want to circle back to the the My Fallen Idol parallel because that's that's the it's a, again it was two episodes because that's the name of the second episode when Cox kind of has his fall from grace and is not coping well. The episode before it was just called My Lunch. The ending of My Lunch hits like a truck because you have they find out they've made a terrible mistake. Mm-hmm. The first two patients die, and the organs that they put in them were significant. And Cox isn't doing too well, but JD going to talk to him. They're going to get things figured out. I think he even says, like, right then, I knew I was going to pull him out of this. Mm -hmm. And then they get paged. The third patient's crashing. It was a kidney, which obviously is necessary, but he could have gone on on dialysis. And Cox tries to save him, charge, clear, trying to bring him back. It's not working. He throws the the charge card aside and is just so angry with himself. And I think he says, like, he wasn't going to die, newbie. We could have waited another month for a kidney. Mm -hmm. And underneath it, you have How to Save a Life by the Fray. It is one of the heavier episodes of Mm -hmm. Scrubs in the entire run. So, translation, I want to go back and watch Fallen Idol from MASH if that's what they were pulling from for the experience and the story arc. Yeah, it's a great episode. I'm kicking myself I didn't have you... Listen to it. (laughs) I will seek it out. I will seek it out, to be sure. There's a great moment, though, at the end of My Fallen Idol, after Cox comes out of his depression, and the whole group is hanging out at the bar and having a good time welcoming him back. And obviously, I haven't seen the whole show, so I don't know how many times he does this, but he calls JD by his name. He doesn't call him newbie, which in all the other episodes I watched, he never does that. Yeah, that's significant because then if it's not newbie, it's also a wide range of girls' names. Yes. 
oh gosh, which you did watch the musical, so you got to hear that string together. <laughs> well, Dorothy, and then I think during Cox's song, he strings a thousand of them together, if I'm recalling correctly. Again, it's been a while. I need to go back and watch the Scrubs episodes because it was part of, you talked about how MASH was a part of, of your upbringing. And I got into Scrubs maybe, because like, I think it debuts in like 2001 and I definitely wasn't mm-hmm. watching it then. But maybe as I'm like starting to get into my tweens, so some of the, I'm getting more of the humor. <laughs> and it's it was then a part of junior high into high school. And it's a lot to unpack, and it's also been a while. So I ne- I do need to go back and experience so many of these episodes again. And if you want to talk about grief and loss, the the big mash episode is Abasanya Henry. There's a reason that we're having conversations on mic about the dramatic aspects, and then off mic joking about so many of the amazing comedic moments in both Scrubs and Mash. And they walk that line so well. You go back and forth between I'm splitting aside at this joke or this reference and, oh, I'm going to need a moment mm-hmm. after that one. Uh, and that's definitely one of those episodes. And it's just, again, I'll, I'll provide some of the context. And I'm enjoying this immensely, the fact that, again, you grew up with the show, but then the guy who experienced it uh, for the first time very recently uh, can describe some of the, the nuts and bolts of it. Uh, you have Lieutenant Colonel Henry Blake, uh, played by McLean Stevenson, who in real life was kind of done with the show. He was looking for another opportunity. He wasn't happy there. And I think he was getting lured away by a rival network, if I'm remembering the story correctly. So they got to write out the commanding officer. And so they put together a script that gives him a great send-off and like how excited he is when he finds out he gets to go home, calling his wife, <laughs> talking to Radar about his wife, and it getting a little awkward for a moment there. The send-off in the restaurant. And it's so cool to me how... In something like Hogan's Heroes, granted they're on opposite sides of the war, the commanding officer, or in the case of Scrubs, the chief of medicine, because for the most of the show it's Kelso, Mm -hmm. your head honcho is usually not a cool character, or is usually the butt of the jokes. And the fact that Henry Blake gets along so well with Trapper and with Hawkeye and is a really funny and cool character, the send-off carries a lot of weight to it. It carried a lot of weight for me, having seen him in two episodes. It was just so well done but you prepared me <laughs> I did for uh, what comes at the end of it in that even the cast and this was what blew my mind when I realized later on that they didn't tell anybody until they were like hey we have one more page of the script here I think the only I think the only person who knew it was coming was Alda mm-hmm. and after Henry Blake has uh, gone off uh, he, they do would you like to do one last or one last review of the troops sir and Blake says I just want to say goodbye and goes around and has a wonderful farewell with uh, each person. And you get just, (laughs) you have Klinger in a dress and like a headdress with fruit, which was Mm -hmm. my first experience of Klinger. (laughs) (laughs) What a great first experience. Oh gosh. Uh, You get Hawkeye suggesting that he make out with hot lips before he get on the chopper. Uh, and Which have... he does, to my recollection. Oh yes, yes he does. And, well, you don't hear what Hawkeye suggests. You then just see him turn around and like, okay, and then he and Hot Lips uh, embrace, and then he has one final hug and salute from Radar. That is just such an amazing moment. And again, kind of that father and son dynamic with Radar's coming of age story. But the f- scene after that, uh, we get bad news. Radar comes into the OR and says that. Lieutenant Colonel Henry Blake's plane was shot down over the Sea of Japan. 
it turned in there were no survivors and the showrunners and the writers talked about this that final shot you just pan across the or margaret is visibly emotional yeah everyone having to just keep working that it's silent except for like one person like drops a tray and it I just love rings. I yeah. love that it is silent except for the clinking of the surgical tools they just have to keep going and then they ended with a montage saying uh, farewell to Henry Blake and it's like it, we're having this conversation as 220 somethings we watch shows where characters get killed off right and left even members of the principal cast and in the 70s that did not happen that was jarring the departure of Henry Blake and just I can see where, again, it kind of set the tone and was part of why MASH was the show people kept coming back to. During one of the reunion shows, there was a conversation between Mike Farrell, who plays B.J. Honeycutt, and David Ogden Steers, who plays Winchester. And Steers talks about first coming on to the show and the start of whatever season it was, and the ratings dipping a little bit. And he's just being like, oh, no, I don't want to be the actor that finally killed this thing. It's already an institution at that point. And... And Farrell pointing out, it's like, oh, I I was worried about the same thing when I came on, which he came on at the start of season four. People go and watch other shows. They want to try new things. They want to look for something that they haven't experienced before. And then eventually they, they remember what they really enjoy and they come back. They always and come back to MASH. They do indeed. And I can understand why. That gets to another just parallel. And we run into this on a few occasions. And again, it's interesting for when the writing decisions and the character development or where the character ends up kind of wind up intersecting when you have an actor that doesn't want to be there or how different characters get written out because then at the start of season four and again i know this only based off of things i've read i haven't watched the episodes yet but you have hawkeye's good friend and and roommate in the swamp (laughs) the tent where they live (laughs) you have trapper leaving heading home getting discharged uh because in real life the actor who played him also was done with the show. Wayne Rogers was ready to move on. Uh, I think they had had a, a dispute of some kind, maybe contractually as well. Uh, again, it's done a lot of reading and different things on this, so things might be running together a little bit. But anyway, he comes off. They're going to bring on another character, and you start to have those parallels between we have Blake in the early run of MASH, we have Potter later on, we have Trapper in the early run, we have BJ Honeycutt later on. Yeah, you can pretty much divide MASH up into those two eras. The... Blake Trapper era and the Potter BJ era. And then you also have, you go from Frank to Winchester, Mm kind of get a parallel there. And that happens after season six, I think. Okay. And then you have, and then you have Radar and Klinger as well. Oh my word. Let's keep moving and talk about one episode of MASH that for me felt like a couple of episodes of Scrubs for a couple of different reasons. You had me watch Dear Sigmund, so mm-hmm. season five, episode eight, and we get to meet the character Sidney. Sidney Freeman. A psychiatrist. Yes. And his presence in the camp works so well. It reminded me of Scrubs for a couple reasons. One, we hear from Sidney in voiceover. So as he's seeing different people in the camp and having different interactions, we're getting to hear his inner thoughts and his letters to Sigmund that he's writing. There's a lot of lines that I, that stuck out. My favorite was probably when he says, anger turned inward is depression. Anger turned sideways is Hawkeye. It's a great line. And is a really good description of his character. The other reason I would parallel it to Scrubs is there is an episode where 
again, it's been long enough, and I also didn't have you watch it, so we're, I'm not going to have a recent reference for this, but it's season one, and there is some sort of evaluation that happens for all the hospital staff, and you get these great moments where each person is essentially opening up and talking to a third party who's coming in, and I don't think we even see the, the character. It's each person to, uh, talking to the camera at that point, and so we have... Of course, John C. McGinley and Dr. Cox sticks out because when he's getting asked, like, why did I get into medicine? Same four reasons everyone does. Chicks, money, power, and chicks. <laughs> and you hear more dynamics as we go on. And I think it's also an episode that followed the first time J.D. and Elliot got together. And it keeps going back and forth between what's currently going on at the hospital and the conversations that are happening there. And it also keeps going back to their first morning together. So... They spend the entire day in bed. They get a pizza. More and more of the pizza is getting eaten as they go back and forth and, and throughout the course of that day. But then as we keep cutting back to the present, we're seeing that their relationship isn't really sustaining well. Uh, and over time, they start again to arguments and are drifting apart a little bit. And towards the end of the episode, Dr. Cox talks about one thing that's a good piece of wisdom, which is just in a relationship at least one person has to go to the mat and fight for it every single time. Someone needs to be willing to keep moving, to keep working together, and to keep fighting for it. And if both people aren't doing that, it's not going to last. I'm paraphrasing greatly. I, that, I know that wasn't the original line, and McGinley does an amazing job with it. And I think what follows it is Elliot and JD, after their relationship has soured a little bit, they both get asked point blank by the interviewer, are you seeing anybody or are you in a relationship? And it's like, oh, am I in a relationship? No. And they both give what at that point is an honest answer. That they've, they've drifted apart. One of the episodes you did have me watch, I think, works well paired with Dear Sigmund as well. Because Dear Sigmund is framed, Sydney comes to visit the 4077 MASH just to kind of get away from it all, which the characters there can't understand because they think it's hell at the MASH camp. To Sydney, it's it's almost a little paradise. But a lot of the characters in it have the question in that episode, like, am I crazy? Cleaner has a great conversation with Sydney where he's like, you know, I dress up in women's clothing to get out of the army, but it's just an act. But I start to wonder, am I actually crazy? When some of the characters find out that Sydney is writing letters to Sigmund Freud, they also ask the question, well, is he crazy? And Sydney comes to the answer that no one there is crazy. They just deal with the horror of their situation in whatever way they have to to process it, which works really, really well for the episode My Screw-Up in Scrubs. And the episode My Screw-Up is Ben, who is Cox's former brother-in-law, appeared in a few previous episodes and was diagnosed with leukemia and now re-enters back in the show and is getting tested, you know, checked up on for his health. Played by Brendan Fraser, too. Played we, by Brendan we, Fraser. We need to get that out of the gate. Because weren't you and Autumn watching some Brendan Fraser material recently? And I just think to myself, oh, yes. I, I know I need to send you these episodes. I'm a huge Brendan Fraser fan. Granted, you went through and gave me a list based off of the, like, well, one, just logic. Some of the standout MASH episodes that even the creators And some of and my say. favorite ones. Yeah, it, exactly. Well, there winds up being that resonance with the general audience of which we are a part and when I went through and was recommending Scrubs episodes to you, I just went into IMDb, and I think my logic, I want to make sure I get the numbers right, I think every single episode I gave you was rated a 9 out of 10 or above, or was in like that 9 point something. There might have been one 8.9 in there, and again, just kind of speaks to 
the ones that generally resonate and do so for so many of those deep human reasons. And oh, yeah, my screw up is one of them. Basically, the premise you figure out at the end of it that Ben has been dead this whole time and Cox is seeing him as this like phantom ghost, which comes back later in another episode we'll talk about. And it's really just his way of dealing with it. But there's this heartbreaking moment at the end of the episode where in the whole episode, Cox is talking about he has his son's birthday that he has to go to and all these things that have to be done for it. And then when you get there to the birthday party at the end, he turns to Ben and he's like, well, why are you not all dressed up? Because Cox is wearing a nice suit or whatever. And then JD comes up behind him, who's also dressed in a nice suit. And he's like, who are you talking to? And then we... Where do you think we are? Where do you think we are? That's what he says. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. then the camera pans and it's Ben's funeral and it's just, ugh. But there's a moment and it's the moment in the show where Ben dies um, where JD has this little monologue talking about how guilt makes people do funny things. And basically the way that Cox had to process his guilt of not being able to save his friend was to have him around as a ghost to help him process through his grief because throughout the whole episode ben as his ghost form just nudges at cox in the right ways to get him to eventually forgive himself at the very end and that continues the the arc from i think it is this i think it's a season one episode where we first get to meet ben and he's first diagnosed with leukemia they've had some lab work and some different things that have come back with errors or just different mistakes that have been made in the hospital and jd gets the results back and thinks this could be wrong. Maybe there's been a mistake that's been made. And he takes it to the the lab tech who's going to analyze it and has a great conversation with him where the tech's just like, are you here because you think I made a mistake or because you wish I did? And JD's honest and says, because I wish you did. And he says, then I'll do it. I'll give it another look. And it, it confirms the diagnosis. But that sense of not being able to escape hangs over that episode and hangs over a lot of episodes where the life and death stakes that these characters are encountering feel so real. For, they're very for real and the they're very inescapable. Yeah. And you get a great parallel to that if we can go back to Dear Sigmund with uh, an experience of a pilot who comes to camp. He was shot down, he's injured, and he's based in Japan. He's nowhere near the front in the war and he's dropping bombs from 12,000 feet and they have an opportunity where they're carrying in another patient and Hawkeye gets him into the OR and they see Potter operating on an eight-year-old and the pilot is in a panic. I think he, he asks like, who, who dropped the bomb? They're like, does it matter? And he's like, it matters a great deal. And I can't remember if it was Potter or Hawkeye. It might have been Potter. just says, doesn't matter to her. <laughs> you realize the collateral damage that is happening from war and then Hawkeye then just says 20,000 feet is a long way to come down because the war becomes real for him in that moment and he's right there with everyone else in the MASH unit and just that sense of fighting against what could potentially be the inevitable is another reason that even considering the finale and also again I have enjoyed every single MASH episode that we've talked about oh Lifetime was good and also written by Alan Alda. And at the beginning of the episode, they're like playing cards or out in the open waiting for the chopper. Chopper shows up. They have a patient that has severe damage to his aorta. And Hawkeye does something to like clamp it down or to make it so the patient will survive. But at that point, they know, okay, we've got roughly 22 minutes before we need to get this fixed or he could become paralyzed. 
and I know there were a lot of different ways that Bash innovated mm-hmm. at, during their run. I saw, uh, I haven't watched the episode yet, but I saw there was one that they did from the point of view of a patient. So the camera is like looking and watching and the characters are talking straight to the cameras. They're interacting. But this one just straight up puts a clock on screen. And as soon as that comes up, you are white knuckling through the episode. You're mm-hmm. just like, okay, or can they get this done? They're working against the clock. And what follows is so cool because Every single character is involved in saving this one patient's life. You have Hawkeye clamping from the very beginning. You have Hot Lips helping him to coordinate and get everything they need in the operating room. You have another chopper come in or, or maybe an ambulance come in with a couple of other patients, one of whom is has minor injuries, another of whom is severely injured and not going to make it. And BJ realizes once this other patient is passed, he can take out the aorta and they can use it to save Hawkeye's patient. And there's a lot of the the parallel. Uh, I'll mention a couple moments from the episode that uh, one that's absolutely hilarious and does contribute to the success of the operation, and then the other one that is just who you feel it. And that's at one point, uh, Father Mulcahy's driving away in a jeep and says, "Father, I've never asked this, but if you're going to take him anyway, take him quickly, so we can save the other boy." And the reality of what they're up against just really hits you with that that one line in there and then you also even have because again i have very limited experience with Klinger to this point but seeing him at that point kind of in the radar role because at that point mm-hmm. Berghoff had left the show and was no longer playing radar and cleaner had become the company clerk yeah there you go and so he is responsible for like getting ice because if they can give the patient hypothermia they might have a little bit more time to operate mm-hmm. on him before he could potentially become paralyzed. So he's going around to the bar and everywhere in the camp to try to get as much ice as humanly possible. He's also trying to figure out, and this is where Winchester comes in, because early on, there's moments with Winchester where it's just like, he's the B-roll. Like, they're having him make snide comments just so they can cut to him, because otherwise an episode that has a ticking clock on it is actually running the elapsed time of the episode, and you're going to have very long takes if you don't have opportunities to cut away. But then eventually the patient needs a blood transfusion and he matches with Winchester who gives some of his blood and Potter's a little concerned because it's like, when did you last give blood? And he's like, five days ago. It's like, hold on. <laughs> I need to make sure you stay upright. And Winchester does actually practically wind up passing out. But they're concerned about one, potentially incapacitating Winchester as well as using up so much of their blood supply if they're going to potentially get more units coming in. If there's a battle going on nearby, they're going to be in trouble. And so they get that information thanks to Klinger because he calls up whatever the equivalent is of high command or whoever in that area is making the decisions and is asking, is there any fighting going on right now that we need to be aware of? And they're not going to give that information to Corporal Klinger. So then he impersonates Potter (laughs) and does his voice perfectly, gets that information, even yells at the guy for not giving the information to Corporal Klinger and tells him, if you hear from him again, cooperate with him. (laughs) And then after that, asks if they have any baklava. (laughs) And gets food and drink shipped to the camp while he's on the phone. And then eventually he goes back to the operating room and says how he was able to do it. And does the Potter impression as Potter comes into the room behind him and hears it and just like, it just goes, you sound like a donkey in heat. (laughs) And again, I'm white knuckling through the entire episode and I am laughing like crazy at Potter saying someone doing an impression of his own voice sounds like a donkey in heat. It's that balance between oh, the humor and so the, the so. real-life drama. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, BJ gets the aorta they need. The patient that they get it from does pass away. His friend wants to be with him in his final moments. 
and they he holds his hand for like what feels like at least a minute as you're watching that clock tick and time pass by and you're in the audience is like i understand this human moment that this guy is experiencing but we're working against the clock here and father mulcahy talks to him about his friend and explains how the patient who is potentially going to die if they don't operate on him is george uh, the patient who is going to die is harold and so he's asking the patient who lived what was harold like and gets the sense that he was very generous very courageous would have jumped on the grenade to save his fellow man and father okay he explains to his friend that's what he's doing right now <laughs> in us taking something from him to give it to another patient to save his life they get what they need they do wind up saving his life uh, just wiggling his toes they know he's not going to be paralyzed and at that point uh, margaret bj and hawkeye are all celebrating and i think it's bj says he's going to be part george part harold and winchester says and part winchester <laughs> as he's like barely conscious at that point and i think the last line of the episode is he won't know whether to be brave generous or pompous freeze frame credits roll it's such a good episode and again puts you in the experience from start to finish and you get to see just the amazing ways everyone is contributing like the i mean potter's even operating i think on the other patients that are coming through as they go i mean just, everyone's an active participant in helping that one patient survive the episode that arrives at the beginning i'm so happy that you love that episode so much because it's it's such a good episode i mean i think it won emmys it's been critically acclaimed for years there's an episode of scrubs that you had me watch which it doesn't have the same like white knuckle effect, but you know from the beginning what's going to happen. So you're sitting there throughout the whole episode, sort of waiting for that moment. And it's season eight, episode two, My Last Words. In the episode, JD and Turk are all excited because they're going to have steak night. Oh, yeah, steak night. That little song and dance that they do. <laughs> and as they're heading out, they check in on like the last patient of the day or whatever, and it's this guy named George, which is funny that the patient is also named George. And I forget what he has. He has some digestive disease, and it's terminal, so he's going to die. And they ask him if he needs anything, and he says, I just want a beer. So they run down to the convenience store, grab a beer. There's this great little moment between JD and Turk in the elevator where JD's like, well, the teenage kid made fun of me for just buying a beer at the convenience store. And Turk is like, is that why you bought the flare guns and the condoms then? And he's like, yeah, because now whenever he thinks of us, he's going to think about us partying with chicks and shooting off flare guns. And they go and they give the beer to George. And he's like, oh, that beer tastes so good. And then they're going to head out and enjoy their steak night. And George says, I've got family coming. Don't worry about me. You guys go enjoy your dinner. But they check in. They check in with Todd, who's writing the will for George before they leave. And Todd says... No, he doesn't have any family. So Turk and JD decide, instead of going on their steak night that they do once a year that they've been looking forward to, they're going to go back and hang out with George. And they just spend the whole episode talking to him about death and their thoughts on it. And at the end, George asks, what's like the last thing you want before you die? And JD says, I think I just want my last thought to be a good one. And George starts laughing and says, come on, man, I'm dying. Like, give me something better than that. And that breaks the ice, and it camera zooms out and says they spend the rest of the night talking, and then George goes to sleep and passes away. His last words are, that beer sure did taste good. And then Turk and JD go up on the roof of the hospital. Turk cracks open the beer, 
says, George was right. This beer does taste pretty good. And JD lifts up the flare gun and fires it off and says, so long, George. (laughs) You get those types of characters in both Scrubs and MASH. And there's one of those kind of one shot or a few episode arcs uh, that I shared with you with the episode, My Catalyst. Yes, starring Michael J. Fox as Dr. Kevin Casey, who has OCD. So he is obsessive compulsive and has to like flick the lights on and off so many times before he exits or enters a room, things like that. And in My Catalyst, he shows up and is a new assisting doctor at Sacred Heart. And in the beginning, everyone loves him because since he's obsessive compulsive, he's so good at medicine. He's studied and restudied and learned all the techniques over and over. He's like an amazing doctor. And Cox gets mad at him because he outsmarts him in front of all the interns. Turk gets mad because he performs a surgery better than he can. And at the beginning, JD thinks, oh, this guy can be my new mentor. I'm so excited. He'll love me the way Cox never loves me. And then Dr. Casey says, nah, that's silly. No one needs mentor. You just got to deal with it yourself or whatever. So they all get mad and they all want to confront him and are angry at him. And there's this really powerful scene where JD tracks him down and he's in the operating scrub room so where they wash up before surgery and dr casey is just washing his hands or wash up after over and over and over again yes dr casey's doing in this case after the surgery he physically cannot stop washing his hands and he says he's been there for two hours just washing his hands over and over and jd says i have to talk to you and casey gets super angry and smacks the soap away and has this sort of breakdown moment. He's like, I'm sorry, just no one's supposed to see me like this. This is my problem that I have to deal with. And JD has that moment of realization that, yeah, we all have our own issues that we all deal with by ourselves, and you can't put your issues onto someone else. Or you don't know what someone's going through no matter how you feel about them at a given time, or check on your strong friends, or just so many of the things that we we see on social media. Like, like That is a another message that again from an episode that aired in a certain time and place and resonates really well so many years later we have another opportunity to make some more character parallels and kind of wind down through some of the episode concepts later on before we attach another connection between characters with mash and scrubs maybe let's uh, talk episode parallels between scrubs and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. True. <laughs> because they both have a musical episode. Yes. I will admit it's been a while since I've watched it, but there are so many songs from that that just stick with you. And Scrubs did so many musical things so well, even before they did a full-blown musical episode, whether it was the use of the song Winter uh, at uh, Ben's funeral mm-hmm. and when we were talking about that episode earlier, or the there's like a season one episode that compares the relationships between surgeons and doctors to the rival gangs of West Side Story. And so JD and Turk are singing on a balcony. The musical episode is something you could have seen coming a mile away, especially given it's season six, right around the same time when Buffy the Vampire Slayer did it in terms of within the context of the show itself. And you pointed out something just that those two have in common in terms of why is a musical coming out of nowhere? Uh Yes. In Buffy, a 
magical demon is summoned who makes everybody in Sunnydale break out in song. So there's an in-universe reason for why everybody's singing, and the characters comment on that. In Scrubs, it's a woman with an aneurysm, and the result of that is that she hears everyone interacting with her in song, which is hilarious because it opens up in the park and everyone's like, why are we singing the song? You said you could see the musical episode coming a mile away. I'll tell you what I didn't see coming was the poop song. <laughs> Everything comes down to poo is so wonderful. And it also feels like even just the moment where Lloyd, the delivery driver, comes up. It's like someone just got some poo in my eye. Check the poo. Mine or his. First him, then you. Just so many wonderful little lyrical motifs. Also, we've already discussed musicals very recently when we talked about Blues Brothers in the fact that you have spontaneous song and dance numbers, you have performances in front of an audience, and you also have character changes that happen within the context of a song. And it's an opportunity, because Buffy did it the same way, to dive deeper into what these characters are experiencing, to explore a relationship dynamic. At that point, uh, you have something like the song and dance number between, well, I guess under your spell with Tara and Willow works as well as... uh, you have I'll Never Tell with Xander and Anya. And then you get those solo moments, which, yes, uh, Rest in Peace from Spike is absolutely iconic from the Buffy episode. And Dr. Cox is just tears into JD and in song. John C. McGinley just does a, a wonderful job with. It's jumping ahead a bit, but in the episodes, my finale of Scrubs, the gift that JD gives to Dr. Cox, the leather bound book that holds. All of his rants rated on a scale. Oh, that was so good. It speaks to how sustained and successful both of these shows were and that I'm giving you a list of ones to watch and we get multiple episodes from season six of the show. We have my musical, which is season six, episode six. And then we have a two-parter with my no good reason and my long goodbye. And we made a comparison, again, just kind of the element of faith in this place that is surrounded by death. And in MASH, that obviously takes the form of Father Mulcahy, who is an amazing character. And you made the parallel for Scrubs between him and, in terms of influence of faith, to Laverne. Yeah, so Laverne is one of the nurses who works at the hospital. And the two episodes you had me watch that were centered around her are sadly... Spoilers, the one in which she passes away, but they're called My No Good Reason and My Long Goodbye. And the first one is Cox and Laverne butting heads because Laverne, due to her faith, believes that everything happens for a reason, and Cox can't understand that. He is like, why would all these terrible things happen? Like, what's the point of that? And there's a little girl that gets stabbed and brought into the hospital And Cox is like, ha, I got you. Why did this little girl get stabbed? There's no reason for that. And then they find a tumor doing a CAT scan of the girl. And Laverne is like, well, that's the reason she got stabbed. Because if she hadn't, no one would have found that tumor and she probably would have passed away. Sadly, that episode ends with Laverne getting into a car accident and falling into a coma. And Cox being the character that gets that news. It's one of... Scrubs did it a little more as they went on. But it's one of those moments where... We're not in JD's shoes. JD is the one breaking the bad news. And again, that, that shows character growth because, again, when he first, when Ben got diagnosed with leukemia, he didn't want to give the bad mm-hmm. news. It's season one. And in season six, he's the one who has to tell Dr. Cox that Laverne probably isn't going to make it. And 
circling back to Ben again in the following episode, My Long Goodbye, we get most of the focus on Carla, who refuses to let go of Laverne. She doesn't want to say goodbye, and she ends up seeing a ghost of her, following her around, talking to her, in the same way that Cox did when Ben passed away. And we get this really heartfelt moment at the end of the episode where she finally goes in after Laverne's brain function has ceased and they're going to take her off life support and she says goodbye and thank you for being there for me for years and teaching me everything and then the ghost of Laverne goes away and you get that closure you get the going through the cycle and in in escaping the denial (laughs) phase of grief which comes up so much as again that sense of not being able to escape it as, as it's what the doctors are fighting against so often I think at this point we've covered the homework that we gave each other of episodes to watch before we recorded this conversation. And now we come to the end. We've reached the finales, yeah. When you have gone on that long, when the audience has gotten to spend that much time getting to know those characters, you got to do a send-off the right way. And it was a huge deal. I mean, it had the most TV ratings of like any program until the Colts versus Saints Super Bowl. Yeah, it did. Yeah, it did. Oh, my. Well, and since then, multiple Super Bowls have broken that record. But the fact that that stands from the 80s until 2010 and it was g- like, gives you a sense of that staying It's power. one of those cultural, like, moments. Like, I remember talking to my parents, and they're like, yeah, I remember watching the finale of MASH on TV. Anyone kind of in that age range, like, you can ask them, oh, where were you when MASH ended? And they'll be like, oh, I was, you know, watching it here. I remember seeing this or stuff like that. Absolutely. It was an interesting watch. Uh, Just coming in and, again, you get that benefit of the fact that MASH is very episodic. I mean, we come in and I I know everybody. I know who these people are, the experiences of what they've gone through in the episode. You you understand what their starting point's going to be. It's not going to vary too much. But Hawkeye's in a psychiatric hospital. <laughs> yes. And having conversations with Sydney. Great to see him again and going through and explaining the trauma that he's gone through. And initially you don't understand why. And they play through a scenario that happened on a bus as the group was coming back to camp. And there was this woman that was like holding a chicken and then the enemy is in the area. They kill the lights. They don't want to get found out. They're being as quiet as possible. And this chicken won't stop clucking. Won't stop making sound. And Hawkeye tells the woman where you get it to shut up or you get it to be quiet. And eventually she does. And as that scene starts to play out and you're realizing it's like her emotional distress or the read that you're getting or just, it doesn't make sense. And then doesn't you realize, Oh, it wasn't a chicken. She smothered her child and at least in part because Hawkeye told them they were going to die if the child didn't stop making noise. Mm-hmm. And that moment just hit you like a ton of bricks. And again, is another parallel, some of the scrubs moments where you think one thing is happening as you're inside a character's head and then realize that this is how they're coping with it and how they're remembering it. And eventually Hawkeye is able to come back to camp. And earlier in our conversation, we talked about geography and how important it can be in weaving a story together. I, I didn't really touch on it when we talked about Lifetime because there were so many other things to talk about in that episode, but the one of the cool things about it is just how seamlessly they're able to weave this character's over here doing this thing, which means it's going to impact what this character is doing over here and just all the ways that that happens within the encampment. And the finale absolutely does that. 
same thing, as they have a tank of all things wind up in the middle of their encampment. And then as a result of that, it wipes out the latrine, which means Winchester then has to go use the bathroom in the woods. And then he happens upon a group of soldiers coming in on a motorcycle and sidecar, but it turns out they're musicians. And you were telling me before we got on the mics, a couple of things. One, Winchester's one of your favorite characters and two, that his love of music has some history that I wasn't going to have having only watched those five episodes. Yeah. Throughout the show, you know, he's always playing classical records and music and stuff in his tent and is always super proud of it. And he's like, you know, you peons don't understand the joy of Bach or Beethoven. That's a big deal for his character. And these Chinese soldiers get brought into camp and turns out, yeah, they play music. And at first they don't play it super well. And Winchester is trying to listen to one of his records in his tent. And they're making this awful squawking sound that he can't stand. So he goes over and yells at them and says, I'm trying to listen to Beethoven. Beethoven, don't you understand? And then as he walks away, they start rustily picking out a Beethoven song. And he's like, in that moment, he realizes, oh, okay, they do understand music. And he takes it upon himself to like teach them and conduct them. And it's heartbreaking because as the episode goes on, they get sent away and wounded come back in. And one of the Chinese soldiers is on the wounded carts and Winchester finds them. And a nurse comes around and tells him that all the other soldiers that were with him died. He was the only survivor. Yeah. Oh, my word. And Winchester goes back to his tent and is just kind of broken down and puts a record on to play some music. And then when it starts up, he just can't handle it and smashes it and destroys his record player and all the music that he has because it's kind of broken his love of that. So many of the character arcs in that final episode and the other one with Winchester is kind of getting into a fight, his disagreement with Margaret, and he's not happy that she helped pull strings to get him a job at Boston Mercy Hospital as head of thoracic surgery when he returns home. Which he's been trying to do for the entire length of the show. Yeah. And ultimately does wind up giving her a very thoughtful farewell in that initially he asked for one of the a book of his that was part of a set that she had and he asked for it back and compares it to having a, a set of teeth with one missing. It wouldn't be fitting to leave the set separated, but then in the end as they're going to be leaving the war and probably not seeing each other again that... Uh, he gives it back to her and they have a very touching goodbye. Who do you even start with? I mean, as you go down the line, everything from there's also POWs in the camp. And when the tank has made the camp a target, so as mortars are coming in and there's more danger as a result of that, and Potter points out that the POWs are sitting ducks, Father Mulcahy rushes out to try to get him out of their enclosure and a mortar lands that uh, injures him and causes him to lose part of his hearing. He asks BJ, who's the one who checks on him, and, and Mulcahy swears him to secrecy so that he can continue to serve orphans in the area and so he can continue to do what he's been doing as opposed to getting sent away. You have Potter, who has been keeping a, his horse throughout the entire show, and when all is said and done, he rides off into the sunset mm-hmm. uh, in just so many great moments and, and a great line there, but I want to I want to get to it a little and later. And I don't know if you ever picked yeah. up on that, but he was a cavalry man in oh, World War One. That so. is cool. That is a cool connection. And Radar was the one who got him that horse in a previous episode. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Yeah, and and then the fact that they keep that thread going through all the way to the end is just so neat. We're bouncing around, but that's because, again, there's so many elements involved and and a lot of great lines here. They're like Hawkeye when he's still in the psychiatric facility and 
calls back to camp is like, every day you let them keep one of your best surgeons here, you're killing patients. And then BJ gets the opportunity to go home and we have the whole issue with struggling to say goodbye. And then, <laughs> oh gosh, or even just little moments where uh, they're building a new latrine after the tank wiped out the first one. And Winchester recognizes one of the men and is just like, you handle our food and dig our latrines. And the guy responds, don't worry, I always wash my hands before I build the latrines. <laughs> and then throughout, you have Klinger's relationship with Sue Lee, which mm -hmm. again, I've only watched the five episodes, so it's my first time seeing her, but they do a great job. It's like, okay, I know, I can see their relationship, I can see how much they care for one another. And the fact that in the end, because she's going to have to try to find her family when the war ends... It's what makes Klinger decide to stay in Korea it's so, after spending the entire show wanting to get out of there. Yes, it's so fitting that Klinger, the character who tried everything to get discharged from the army and sent home, is the one out of the main cast who stays in the war. The moment where Klinger says to the rest of the camp or says to everybody that's there that he's going to stay is part of one sequence that I was initially expecting to be shorter. It's a two-hour episode. I don't know why I was expecting it to be shorter. <laughs> but it's the moment where after they come together for one final night or one final dinner, everyone gathered together, they go around and they're all going to say what they're looking forward to doing after the war. And I was expecting a montage of, like, this main character, what they're going to do, this main character. But everyone who's there says something. And they all give a wonderful little nuances to, I was a nurse in the Second World War. Now, after going through this, I think I'm done <laughs> to uh, the another woman who says, uh, I want to go into labor and delivery after spending so much time dealing with the end of life. I think I'd like to deal with the beginning. And they're all characters that have been there for seasons. Some of them since the very beginning of the show, they've been in the background and minor characters. I mean, some of them, you know, their names, some of them you don't, but they've been there the whole time and you get to know them and they get that nice little send off. And then there's the moment that always makes me tear up, which is when Potter says goodbye and BJ and Hawkeye give him a salute. One last salute. Oh, yeah. Well, and he says the line that I have all the things I have in my notes here that I put in bold. It would be hard to call what we went through fun, but I'm sure glad we went through it together. And that's the show in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. That is going through COVID in a nutshell. The experience has not been fun. But I'm glad that we've gone through it together. I'm glad that we've gone through it as a group. And just the the love that you see between the characters in that finale. And just like BJ not saying goodbye. Or even, quick aside, the fact that at one point when they reunite once Hawkeye's come back and BJ also, after a failed attempt to get sent home, also winds up coming back to camp. And it's like, I have a chance to leave. Gets to Guam. Well, we need another surgeon. They send him back. <laughs> <laughs> and he comes back to camp and he asks Hawkeye some of the effective like, oh, didn't you miss me? And, he, and Hawkeye's just like, I just assumed you were in the bathroom, which given Hawkeye drove the tank out of camp and in the process mowed down the latrine <laughs> has some extra layers to it with that particular comment. But we get to the end of it. We hear the sound of a chopper and Hawkeye's quip. Sounds like my cab's here. And The choppers that you've heard mm -hmm. countless times throughout oh, the show. so much so. And just the, their wonderful conversation at the end. I, I won't be able to shake you. I'll, I'll miss you. I'll miss you a lot. And I mean, both Alda and Farrell do such a good job of, of, of selling that moment at the end. And at that point, they really, it's, 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 so, it's also so genuine because something that they've been so invested in for 8 and 11 years mm -hmm. is coming to an end. 
the line that BJ says, I can't imagine what this place might have been like if I hadn't found you here. Just I am so grateful for your, your friendship. And I, well, I, I can't sitting here add any extra context to the moment. It's just so, so well done. And then the helicopter pulling away. And the rocks spelling out goodbye. BJ leaving a mm-hmm. message for Hawkeye. BJ goes off on a on a motorbike, and the theme song, the theme music swells mm-hmm. as and it's just Hawkeye the empty camp. Away. It is the empty camp, and it is so well done. It is such a perfect ending, and again, great finale, great way to end it and leave it. And I really wish Scrubs had done the same thing. <laughs> they had the perfect ending. I was telling you before we got on the mics. I don't understand how there's a season nine because the end of season eight, my finale parts one and two is such a good send off for the show where JD is finally leaving sacred heart hospital. He's moving on to something else in his life and he's all excited for his final day because you know, everyone's going to say goodbye. He's going to get a big party. He's finally going to get the love from Cox that he's always wanted. And Turk is happy and gives him a big spin around eagle eagle at the beginning and has mass prepared for him to drop on and drops a big banner saying bye JD but everybody else it kind of seems like it's a normal day for them and that gets to JD and he's bummed about it we do get a couple nice beautiful moments between characters there's actually a really good moment between JD and Kelso because Kelso comes back to steal his favorite table from the coffee shop before he drives away <laughs> Which is also basically where Kelso's been living since retiring from his role as chief of medicine. He's just in the coffee shop like every day. He doesn't know what to do with himself. But they have a nice little exchange and Kelso's like, proud of you, son. And they shake hands and it's nice. And then JD gets a nice little moment with Carla as well where she makes fun of Cox. And JD looks over and he's like, well, how come you never picked on me? And she's like, well, you're Bambi. Somebody had to teach you how to walk. And he just says, thanks for being my teacher. And it's a nice little beautiful moment. But he still doesn't get that one moment that he wants with Cox. And it's not until the second episode when that finally happens. And he has to trick him into it because he has one of his interns who's with Cox say, ah, they're going to miss JD, but he's just like any old doctor. And then Cox has this really nice monologue where he talks about how JD is one of the finest doctors he's ever worked with and one of the finest people because he's the only other doctor he's met who cares about their patients as much as he does. And, of course, the whole time, JD is creeping there in the background right behind Cox's shoulder. And then when he finishes his speech, he's like, ah, you do care. And it's great because there's this moment where Cox is just like, oh, no. It's so good, and you get the final walk through the hallway where it's just like, they brought everybody back. With all the characters that have been there over the season, whether it's the girl from the musical episode, Todd, like other characters that have been there the whole time. Dead and Alive. Dead and Alive, yes. The old lady that he met in My Old Lady is there at like the very end. So it brings him on his journey to where he ends now as a man, a competent doctor, like a man in his own right. And there's also uh, someone in the maintenance staff, which worth referencing, not the janitor, <laughs> who is so iconic. Uh, Neil Flynn just does such an amazing job with that character. That's true. We, we haven't talked s- about the janitor We did yet. not spend hardly any time on him for how amazing he is on that show. But you see someone in maintenance as JD is leaving, and it's Bill Lawrence, the creator of the show, uh, in one of the final shots. 
And yeah, again, had they held there, it is just a perfect send off. And the montage you get of him being like, well, I'm excited about my future because it can be, you know, whatever I imagine it to be. And then they have the sheet in front of him and they play the old movie reel on it of him and Elliot getting married. And then they have a kid and then a Christmas with Turk and Carla and Cox and his family all coming together for Christmas. And then Turk and JD's kids getting married, (laughs) getting engaged and JD just (laughs) passing out. One of those things where, again, I think you and I can both look back and just be very glad that these shows were a part of our formative years. stayed with the post-breakdown musical interlude way longer there because this track is called Whalefall. It was written by Silbo Gamero, a duo featuring Hope Arthur and Kurt Remke, who composed the theme music for Storytelling Breakdown. This track was recorded in session with Nick Brosty, and we'll link to the music video for it in the show notes for this episode. is a little bit ridiculous but why not tell it okay so there's a clip i've seen of john cleese accepting an award and i think it's like from the 80s for the movie a fish called wanda if you're trying to find it on youtube it's john cleese thanks everyone in the world and the reason for that is he starts out by thanking people who are actually involved in the movie the director uh, one of his co-stars is actually jamie lee curtis as he goes it progressively starts to get more ridiculous and thanks people like Public Relations Department at Turkish Airways, St. Francis of Assisi, 
Diana Ross and the Supremes, Herb Alpert and his Tijuana Brass, the Royal Society for the Prevention of Birds, the planet Saturn, and of course, all of its rings, and last but not least, God. Now, everything I just said, his list was 20 times longer. <laughs> it's so funny. And again, it's for a movie called A Fish Called Wanda, which at this point I have not seen. A couple years ago, I get a Christmas present from my brother. It's Aquaman on Blu-ray. And I open up the packaging, and there is a label over the title of the film that says, A Fish Called Wakanda, which is simultaneously a reference to Black Panther, given the Wakanda connection and the they're both stories about kings and kind of coming-of-age stories in a sense, although, I mean, objectively, Black Panther's obviously the much better film. But thanks to me not being overly familiar with A Fish Called Wanda, I did not catch that reference for 14 months until I saw that video on YouTube of John Cleese. <laughs> All of that is to say, we began at John Cleese, we took a right-hand turn at Aquaman, and then we have finally arrived at Black Panther, and that is the subject of our spotlight for this episode. And you still have not introduced our guest star. <laughs> right. So Larissa Whitaker is a friend of ours and has been for many years. We overlapped with her at the University of St. Francis. She has overseen podcast projects of her own. There is a series called Active Listening that students at USF produced in a partnership with 89.1 WBOI. It was so cool to watch that project come together. And I've also gotten to work with Larissa for Middle Waves Music Festival, Creative Mornings, and she's written for the Storytelling Breakdown blog community. Now, finally... She joins us in the studio. In every sense of the word, Ryan Coogler's Black Panther is good. The film is so excellently crafted that I could spend hours talking about it. I mean, the costumes, the music, the performances, the story, the characters. From scene to scene, there's so much to appreciate. And I've been a fan of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, or MCU, for some time now. When we did our episode on Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, we, referring to Caleb, Autumn, and myself talked about how phase one was basically our high school experience. How did things line up for you? It was a little bit similar, but it was more because I came into the Marvel Cinematic Universe during high school, though it had already started. My interest in it began with The Avengers. What an event. I saw that movie in theaters with my family, and it was something we could all enjoy together. From there, I was hooked. I watched Iron Man 3 and Captain America Winter Soldier and even Thor The Dark World. For my 16th birthday, I celebrated with a superhero theme, sent invitations made to look like memos from S.H.I.E.L.D., and asked everyone to come dressed up and ready to party. We played Pin the S.H.I.E.L.D. on Captain America. My grandma altered a red dress and added gold sequins, so I got to look like Iron Man. It was awesome. Though I've been a fan of the MCU for several years and I enjoyed the stories, I didn't always put myself in the position of the characters. I saw them as separate. There were several I wanted to be more like, in the way that audiences are often asked to aspire to be the heroes, but none felt like they reflected parts of who I am. That's something Caleb and I haven't talked about a ton, but as a pair of straight white dudes, we have a century of cinema that has been viewed primarily through our lens and experience. That feeling of being seen by our media doesn't really hit the same way when you've never been consistently unseen. Like a lot of people, I rarely saw myself on screen in Marvel films. Being a young, able-bodied white woman, I'm more privileged than most. If I look outside of superhero films, there are several stories led by white women. 
Looking at Marvel in particular, I still had Black Widow and a pocket full of others. Seeing them flip around and kick butt was fun, but it always felt like there was something missing. As time passed, Marvel fell out of my main interests. I still watched the movies as they came out, but I didn't get excited like I used to. When Black Panther was released, my experience of the MCU was forever changed. For the first time, I felt like I could see some truth within myself represented on screen. More than any other characters in the MCU, I feel represented by the women of Black Panther. Just like the rest of the film, there is so much to admire when it comes to the women of Black Panther. For the purpose of this spotlight, I'm going to focus on Danai Guerrera's Okoye and Lupita Nyong'o's Nakia. Even more specifically, I'd like to talk about one conversation between these two characters. This conversation happens immediately after Killmonger seems to defeat T'Challa in ritual combat. Okoye and Nakia meet briefly. They talk about how to respond in this moment. Their conversation shows us who they are and what they believe their country needs. This marks a clear difference in their ideologies, and it shows how difficult that is because they share many of the same values. They both love their country, they both love T'Challa, and they both see themselves as personally accountable to the well-being of their nation. R. Eric Thomas at Elle Magazine articulates the weight of the scene perfectly. He writes, It's sheer rarity aside, what's also remarkable is that Okoye and Nakia, in the scene and in the film as a whole, act not as simple emotional signifiers for the audience, but as the intellectual tentpoles upon which the central ideas of the film rest. The importance of this can't be overstated. Most of the time when people talk about Black Panther, they, of course, start with T'Challa. But you can't talk about his character arc in the film without showing how all of the side characters, calling them side characters just sounds like I'm selling them short. Anyway, you can't talk about T'Challa without bringing up the influences of others in his life. When we reach the end of the film, he shares Nakia's view. That's not to sell Okoye short either. They're both admirable characters who hold their worldviews for an abundance of reasons. Every time I watch this scene, Ben, every time, I have chills. Like so many of my favorite stories, it reflects parts of who I am or who I aspire to be back to me. I've always been drawn to exploring leadership and the courage, intelligence, and compassion and conviction necessary to lead. But before watching Black Panther, I had never seen that part of myself reflected back to me on screen. It wasn't part of my viewing experience. Black Panther was the first time I saw not one, not two, but several empowered women hold their own in a story. This particular scene was the first time I saw two such women have an interesting, high-stakes conversation about ideological differences. How Okoye and Nakia respond to this moment greatly shapes the outcome of the film. Okoye and Nakia's conversation validates a lot of the feelings I had and still have when I think about what my responsibility is to my community. When I see something happening and it upsets me, how do I respond? Do I uphold the institutions I've been taught to believe in, improving the system from within, like Okoye? Do I create my own path outside the system, leaving to do that which aligns with my values, like Nakia? In an already rich and thoughtful story, this conversation manages to approach an ideological difference with clarity and nuance. It is one of the many moments of Black Panther that stands out in my mind. 
It shows us how Nakia and Okoye have similarities and what it is exactly that makes them different. And it's not superficial. At all. It is difficult and aching and beautiful. The conflict between Okoye and Nakia and how to respond to this moment echoes one of the film's themes. Is it our responsibility to maintain the virtue of the status quo and protect ourselves? Or is it to risk our safety and the status quo in seeking a better, more equitable future for everyone? Really? What I love about this conversation is that it shows me two powerful, self-aware women can have thoughtful conversations about what to do in response to a national crisis, and they are fully prepared to lead the way in making whatever decisions necessary. They do not want or need anyone else's permission. They are empowered by their convictions. They take initiative. Their decisions affect the outcome of the story. Each of them have incredible agency in the story and in their lives. They remind me of my power. They show me what could be the best of myself. Okoye and Nakia are aspirational figures. There's something that lives within them and within so many elements of this film that calls me to reach toward a better version of myself so I can work for a better version of my community. Okoye and Nakia are heroes, and they're so human. Larissa Whitaker. Thank you for your time, your thoughtful exploration. And after several blog posts, I'm glad we could get you on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Ben. I'm so glad to be part of the Storytelling Breakdown community. What's that? The spotlight sound effect again? Does that mean we have two spotlights in this episode? Oh, yes. Yes, we do. Will this become a regular thing? Too early to tell. But anyway, we wanted to bring the spotlight to you because it centers around our topic from last episode. We're on a Mission from God was an opportunity for Caleb and I to dig deeper into a movie that we both love, The Blues Brothers. But we didn't grow up in Chicago in 1979, as the movie was being filmed. The next spotlight comes from Rob Martinez, who hosts his own show, The Movie Music Spotlight, on 89.1 WBOI. The show airs and can be heard live online at WBOI.org at 10 p.m. Eastern on Thursdays and 7 p.m. on Sundays. It has been a joy getting to know Rob over the last several years, and it came as no surprise that part of his framing device for the spotlight is the Chicago Cubs. The summer of 1979. It was a magical time if you lived in Chicago and its suburbs. I was 10 years old living in Linwood, Illinois, one of the suburbs due south of the Windy City. There was something in the air, and it started in April. The Cubs actually didn't tank and were competitive from day one. That was a shock. The other earthquake was Jane Byrne was elected as mayor of Chicago, the first woman ever to hold that office. She was now the head of a Democratic machine founded by longtime Mayor Richard Daley, whose officials weren't too pleased that an outsider, and a woman, was in charge. One of her first visitors that April was a pair of comedians who asked for permission to film a movie in Chicago. John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd presented the plan for the Blues Brothers to Jane Byrne. Not director John Landis, not producer Robert K. Weiss, not a representative of Universal Studios. They were like two kids who were sent to the principal's office and were making it up as they went. Belushi was sweating profusely and Aykroyd was laying out scenes he had written. We want to drive a car through the window of Daly Plaza, Aykroyd began to say. Belushi interrupted with, and we promise it will look brand new the morning after. 
In a 2010 Chicago Tribune interview, Byrne admitted she knew it would anger the city government. So she simply said yes. She convinced George Dunn, the longtime president of the Cook County Board of Commissioners, to allow movie productions to shoot within its borders. Dunn reluctantly agreed, since his son was an actor with several movies under his belt. When it was announced that the Blues Brothers would film in Chicago and the suburbs that summer, the entire area was gleeful in anticipation. Now, any story about the production printed in the Chicago Sun-Times or the Chicago Tribune were filed away for future reference. One story that I remember reading was about a local actor and musician who got himself a role in the upcoming production. Murphy Dunn was hired by Belushi as the keyboardist after Paul Schaefer honored his commitment to Gilda Radner and her Broadway show. Murphy was thrilled to be part of the band and the movie. And it doesn't hurt that his father was the president of the Cook County Board of Commissioners, only in Cook County. The production descended into Chicago in July, and the Cubs were still in second place. Almost daily, we watched local television station reports on the filming, hoping for a glance of Aykroyd or Belushi, the favorite son of Wheaton, Illinois, a western suburb where John's mother still lived. One of the earliest scenes they filmed was Elwood's car jump over the bridge after he picked up Jake and Joliet. That was the 95th Street Bridge over the Calumet River, a mere two miles from my grandmother's house in South Chicago, and it was a bridge we crossed every time when we went to visit. Sadly, we never tried to make the jump when the bridge was up. One Saturday morning that summer, I was watching the usual cartoons when the station interrupted for a special report. The reporter stated that the Blues Brothers wanted to film a scene along the banks of the Chicago River, but had to prove to the Federal Aviation Administration a stunt would be safe. And that's how my brothers and I saw a specially weighted 1977 Ford Pinto dropped by a helicopter from 120 stories up. During the first drop, the car rocked back and forth as it sank. They clearly did not have enough weight in the car. The second drop went smoother. The Pinto remained level for most of the drop, but as I watched, it definitely rocked towards the bottom as it landed out of camera shot. By this time, the FAA said, yeah, it's not an airplane. Here's our approval. We're out of here. But when they announced they would drop a third Pinto, all three local TV stations in Chicago covered it live. And that's how it was all summer. We watched the film crews make two runs of the Bluesmobile underneath the elevated tracks downtown with speeds that would reach nearly 110 miles an hour. The newspaper had pictures of Illinois Nazis at a bridge in Jackson Park, just a stone throw away from the Museum of Science and Industry. I remember a radio report that summer with a stodgy reporter stating, the Blues Brothers filmed a smash-up today at LaSalle and Lower Wacker Drive. And then you heard the sounds of 60 cop cars crash under the elevated tracks. The noise lasted a full 30 seconds. We watched later that summer as Belushi and Aykroyd caused a near riot at a downtown festival when they joined members of the Billy Goat Tavern at their food tent slinging cheeseburger, cheeseburger, cheeseburgers as an homage to their Olympia Cafe sketches on Saturday Night Live. Television stations went live again as the Bluesmobile drove through the windows at Daly Plaza as promised. For the record, it was done four times. When they returned to film the Chicago Police and Fire Departments as well as the Illinois National Guard with their artillery cannons and tanks storming after the Blues Brothers at City Hall, they couldn't keep the crowds away. If you watch those scenes again, you'll see thousands of people lining the plaza. 
Now, all these moments were special. It connected the entire area to the film. However, the best for me was one magical summer night in August. My father threw my brothers and I into our station wagon and traveled to a place I had only visited once in my lifetime. We had come in 1974 when Commander Jim Irwin, a former Apollo 15 astronaut, made a personal appearance. The Dixie Square Mall in Harvey, Illinois, was 12 miles from my home in Linwood, Illinois. On this night, the Blues Brothers were filming at the mall, and the police had every road closed surrounding the set. You couldn't get near it. We parked the car at a gas station and began walking towards the mall, only to have several cops turn us around. We didn't give up. We traveled on foot on side streets and hoped we could sneak around the barricades. We were stuck behind several rental trucks when a member of the film production security spotted us. My father quickly took control of the situation and pleaded with the badge to let us stay to watch anything. Stay here, the guy said. Ten minutes later, the guy remembered us and came over. He pointed to a spot north of the mall parking lot where a small group of about 100 people were observing the shoot. We ran over and stood with the rest of them and were welcomed by a person who told us, stand here and watch. No talking, no screaming, no moving, no reacting to anything. We had made it. We stood there in the parking lot and saw a construction team tending to a spot on the mall, fully bathed in light and swarming with activity. The area cleared. We heard faint voices on walkie-talkies and an occasional scream, and then everything was quiet. We stood there and watched. It seemed like an eternity. We didn't know what we were looking at. Smash! We all reacted, but we stood still. We weren't even sure what we saw. It was a blur. The special glass made hardly any noise. We heard a person scream, the voices on the walkie-talkies, the activity began to swarm again, and we were able to move and react and make noise. We couldn't believe it. It was absolutely unreal. We had just witnessed the Bluesmobile jump out of the J.C. Penney window. And every time I see that movie later, I smile as widely as I did that night. I had saw something that got into the movie. The Blues Brothers ended shooting in early September and left Chicago for the sunnier climbs of Hollywood. And by now the Cubs were deep in fifth place and falling apart. It would be a long winter for both the Cubs and the movie. After editing was complete, director John Landis met with Universal Studios Brass, who set up a meeting with Ted Mann, the head of Mann Theater Chains, then the largest film exhibitor in the western United States. He frankly told Landis that white viewers were unlikely to see a film featuring older black musical stars like Cab Calloway and John Lee Hooker, and he wouldn't be booking the movie in white neighborhoods. Now, years later, Dan Aykroyd stated that racism hurt the Blues Brothers. It got less than the half of the bookings nationwide, especially in the South, which guaranteed the movie would flop at the box office. In May, the plans for a gala Chicago premiere were scrapped by Universal Studios, fearing, and this is a quote, things would get out of hand. Maybe he was referring to John Belushi, who was heavily addicted to cocaine by this time and disappearing for days on end. The movie would open on Friday, June 20th, two days after my 11th birthday. Only 15 theaters and drive-ins around the Chicagoland area would have the movie. 
And one of those places was River Oaks Theater in Calumet City, Illinois, the home of the Blues Brothers, and a mere five miles from my home in Linwood, Illinois. We took great pride in that. When we finally got into a screening, my father, brothers, and I watched and spotted the 95th Street Bridge at the very beginning of the movie. My dad grew up on the south side and rocked back and laughed the hardest. He spotted several other locations near our grandmother's home that was in the movie. The tabernacle that stood in for Reverend Cleophas James Church was eight blocks away, and the curl-up-and-die salon where Carrie Fisher filmed the quick scene is located a mere three blocks away. But when Jake and Elwood arrived at the Palace Hotel ballroom and slinked around to the tune of Minnie the Moocher, my father nearly collapsed. As we left the theater, he told us his first job as a teenager was as a caddy at the South Shore Country Club, a golf course owned by the Chicago Parks District. Now that was the outdoor location near Lake Michigan, not Lake Wasapamani, that they used for the Palace Hotel Ballroom. In his review of the film, Gene Siskel gave it four stars and said it's the best film ever made in Chicago. And I totally agree. It's a great, funny movie with brilliant music that still holds up today. It captured John Belushi filming in his hometown at the height of his short, turbulent career. It introduced a new generation of fans to the music of James Brown, Ray Charles, at the height of disco music. Ray-Ban was just about to discontinue their Wayfarer sunglasses, but thanks to the Blues Brothers, their sales went up, they became iconic, and to this day, it's still their best-selling pair of sunglasses. Most importantly, The Blues Brothers is the movie that opened up the city of Chicago to film and television projects. After The Blues Brothers filmed there and spent almost $30 million around the area on the production, anything with a camera was welcome to shoot, and not just on the weekends. Between 1980 and 1989, almost 200 movies were filmed in Chicago. Lastly, The Blues Brothers is arguably the most quotable movie ever. We have both kinds, country and western. Four fried chickens and a Coke. 1060 West Addison, that's Wrigley Field. Mayor Daly no longer dines here. He's dead, sir. I've always loved you. And my favorite comes very early in the movie. It's quick, it's a throwaway from a peripheral character, and it's the best non-sequitur from any movie that never fails to make me laugh. Did you get me my cheese whiz, boy? Thank you, Rob. Our theme music is by Kurt Remke. Our logo is by Daniel Church. Steven Stahovsky joins us as a writer, producer, and editor. Our podcast is hosted by John Dawkins and Wayne Shout Productions. Today, that is literal as well as digital. Our social media coordinator is Ella Abbott. Thank you for having us. Everyone has a story. These are some of our favorites. And this has been Storytelling Breakdown.
WSP, Wayne Shout Productions. Wayne Shout.